with issue for all women. Hello, hello, Mickey here, welcoming you to this week's Sunday Chops. Welcome, come on in. We have, as ever, a bloody smasher of a listener for you. Yes, I'm biased, but do you know what else I am? I'm right. Back last May, when I interviewed classicist, comedian and author Natalie Haynes about Pandora's Jar, her anthology of women in Greek myths, I very meanly asked for her favourite woman from Greek myth. And, without hesitation, she said, Medusa. And even if, like me, you've only really had a passing knowledge of Medusa, the woman with snakes for hair and the ability to turn living creatures to stone with just a look, you can understand why. She's a powerful woman, horribly wronged and then painted as a monster. I know! How times have changed, eh? Oh, oh, oh. Stoneblind is Natalie's brilliant, sharp, warm, funny and incredibly moving novel about Medusa's story. Natalie and I also chat religion, capricious deities, goddess alter egos, knitting and how to research the women in Greek myths, given women in the classics tend to get pretty short shrift when it comes to mentions in the epic poetry. Stoneblind is out on September the 15th, but you can also listen to Natalie on her excellent Radio 4 series, Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics, all of which is available on BBC Sounds, and by all of which, I mean, at the moment, 31 episodes. There's one more episode to be released of Series 8, but you've got a lot of catching up to do if you've not already listened. Finally, it would be remiss of me not to tell you that A Thousand Ships, Natalie's 2019 novel retelling the mythology of the Trojan War from the perspective of the women involved, remains one of the most heartrending takes on the true cost of conflict for women. I can't recommend it more. Anyway, let's talk about Medusa. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by writer, broadcaster, classicist, comedian, keen knitter and Medusa stan account, Natalie Haynes. Hello, hello. Hello. How you doing? Well, that's a longer business card than I used to have, eh? (laughs) (laughs) It'd have the most amazing sort of logo, though. Would you go for Medusa as a logo? Oh, definitely. Yeah, all day long. A knitted Medusa. I mean, people do knit them or crochet them and they send me pictures. So, yeah, it's probably only a matter of time. Yeah. I'm loath to say this out loud. <laughs> you get like Medusa fan goodies. This is incredible. It's like I said, like a hundred. I honestly do. <laughs> she would make a great finger puppet, though, with all the snakes. Yeah, she would. Please stop talking. <laughs> I don't have any room. It's a one bedroom flat. <laughs> Have you been knitting recently? Have you knitted anything exciting I've been yourself? So slow, man. I've been so slow. I've been knitting the same thing for about a hundred years. It feels like. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, mildly, but it got so hot, hey, in London. Yeah. So I didn't. So it was too hot to have anything kind of woolly lurking around. Just even sat on your lap while you're knitting. Yeah, it, yeah, it was too, too much. And then also, my publishers made me sign thirteen thousand copies of Stoneblind, and honestly, that took about ninety hours. So that was quite a lot of. I was going to say free time. <laughs> it wasn't really free time. It was like fun time. It was time when I watched TV and, you know, knit. And I lost all of it to sit there and just write my name over and over again, like Jack Nicholson and The Shining. Did the title just start to taunt you by like 12,000? I forgot my own name quite often. And I certainly forgot how to. It's really weird. You know that thing where when you've seen a word too many times and you're like, wait, what does that word even mean? Yeah. When that's your name, that's quite weird. And also the bit where you just think, I kind of know my name I don't really know how to spell it anymore and then you know a bit later you're like well I kind of know my name and how to spell it can't really write anymore (laughs) so yeah I went through various sort of stages of of inability to but I mean I physically wrote 
26,000 words because my, my book signature is both my names. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's like more than a quarter of a book. And just in turn, and you think, well, at least in The Shining, where he writes all work and no play makes Jack, he's got a typewriter. I mean, you know. <laughs> I find my hand cramps up with a birthday card these days. Yeah, same. Yeah. So, yeah, it was quite, I, I, I do handwritten notes for live shows, for the live tour and for the radio series, because obviously they're performed live in front of an audience. So I still handwrite those. But otherwise, signing books is the only handwriting I do now. So some people, when you get your copy of Natalie's excellent new book, Stone Blind, there might just be a line in it if it's a signed yeah. one. But, you know, yeah. just think of the torture, the torture of the author. This is what they're talking about. My friend Heather said it looked like a sort of elegant EKG. I'm like, it's, it's only the first one of the session that's elegant. <laughs> and after that, <laughs> increasingly like a cry for help. So I apologise if you get a cry for help book. Uh, I was actually <laughs> crying for help. So thank you for your kind words. <laughs> I think, listeners, she's crying out for more knitted medusas. But, you know, that's just my, my opinion. <laughs> stop, stop. <laughs> so Natalie, last time you were on the podcast back in May last year, we were chatting about Pandora's Jar, which is your ex anthology of the women in Greek myths and when I asked who was your favorite you did say Medusa so tell us about your new novel Stoneblind. So Stoneblind is the book that I owed Medusa after I'd written her chapter in Pandora's Jar. I mean that book is about 10 different women Mm -hmm. um, so they each get uh, I don't know about 9,000 words a sort of 9,000 word essay I guess and I got to the end of her chapter and I was just as angry as when I started, mm. really. You know, none of it. It's like she is so badly treated, both, you know, within her myth and then with the reception of the myth and how the myth has been treated through later history. Yeah. And I was like, man, I'm so I'm so angry for you. I'm so hurt for you. Even as I was still writing Pandora's Jar, I was like, I kind of feel like I owe her a book, like her own book, a novel. And so I wanted to write her story, I guess, and and essentially to do what I'd done with A Thousand Ships, to take a polyphonic idea of a novel. So loads of different narrative voices in order to shine lights on loads of different aspects of her story, because there actually are very few ancient sources about Medusa, lots of vase paintings, lots of sculpture, lots of visual sources, but very few literary sources. And by far the longest is in Ovid's Metamorphoses, and that focuses on Perseus. But there are earlier mentions of her in Hesiod and in Pindar, but they're very, very brief. So I thought, well, you know, this is this is a story that I, I think we tend to see her as a monster because she's got snakes for hair yeah. and because she can turn you to stone. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure I think that's what makes a monster. And the piece that I wrote in Pandora's Jar, I looked at somebody else who has the ability to to turn things to inanimate objects with their own power, and that was Midas, you know? So Midas makes a wish has a wish granted by the gods and he wishes that everything he touches will turn to gold so you know it starts off being lovely hooray everything is gold and then it becomes bad how can i eat and drink and we always look at midas's story i think from the inside like oh what would it be like if i couldn't eat or drink because everything i touched turned to gold but we look at medusa from the outside how do i avoid being turned to stone by this terrifying monster and it's like well i have a question and it's why are we doing that why are we doing that What's it like to be her? What's it like to not be able to look at anything you love without killing it? And that right there was, you know, where I started. And in some ways, it's it's also sort of where I finished, I guess. Medusa is probably the most misunderstood of all Greek myth monsters, very much in mm. inverted commas. I think that's right. Could you just remind the listeners, in case they don't know, what the story of Medusa is? 
Of course. Yeah, so Medusa is a Gorgon. She is the she is one of three Gorgon sisters. And this needs pointing out right from the outset, we don't think of her as one of three sisters, I don't think. We tend to think of her as a sort of solitary monster. Mm-hmm. But she's not. And when she dies, spoiler, she is deeply mourned by her two sisters, Theno and Uriali. So she's one of three sisters. And Hesiod tells us that the other two Gorgons are immortal but Medusa is mortal. And he only gives us like a sentence on this. He says, that's a wretched fate. That's it. Boom, gone. And it's like, well, yeah, excuse me, I have a question. (laughs) That is a wretched fate, isn't it? Because it means her sisters are going to live forever and she is going to be the only one who changes, who grows, which obviously was great scope for how does that family dynamic work? Because it means that she can be a baby, you know, and and she'll grow up. And they obviously can't be that because they're just unchanging and immortal, except they're not quite unchanging because they love someone who changes all the time, the way humans or mortal Gorgons do. And then Medusa is assaulted. She's raped by the god Poseidon in the temple of Athene. And as so frequently happens in myth and alas, in reality, nobody blames the rapist. They blame the woman raped. And so Athene punishes Medusa by literally turning her into a monster. She's so angered by the profanation of her temple but that, that a sexual act took place in the temple. Mm. But she doesn't blame the person who does it. She blames the person who's accosted. And so she gives her snakes for hair and she gives her her ability to turn things to stone, which I know some people want to, to see that as a sort of feminist act of solidarity but I'm afraid Athene is never remotely nice to women in any narrative that we have of her so that's optimistic beyond the point of reason I think and Perseus is sent on a quest a young Greek hero as a demigod I suppose in the making because he's a son of Zeus and a mortal woman named Danae and the quest is to bring back the head of a gorgon and the only mortal gorgon i.e. the only one you can kill is Medusa and so it is Medusa's head that he seeks and what had bothered me for a long time once I'd written that Pandora's Jar chapter is that I hadn't really noticed until I was researching it that she doesn't kill anyone when she's alive, when she has agency. You know, we think of her as this monster. She can turn you to stone. Yeah, but she doesn't turn you to stone, Mm. does she? It's like she turns loads of people to stone. No, Perseus turns loads of people to stone using her head as a weapon of mass destruction. That is a different issue entirely. So she actually works really hard not to kill people and and I felt that whole side of her story was just, if not lost, then then not known in the first place. And so, yeah, that, that was sort of where it all began. You actually deal with the difference between Medusa being alive and not turning anyone to stone and what Perseus does after he's killed mm. her really beautifully and really cleverly in the book. I'm not going to spoil Thank it for you. people, but I, I loved that. I thought it was a very, very clever conceit. It's an urgent handbrake turn when I wrote it. I, <laughs> I feel bad because now we have to have this conversation, just the two of us, because no one else can know what happens at this point. In the book. But I got to that point in the book and it's about four fifths of, of the mm. way through. And I wrote the next bit and I was like, wait, can I? Wait, can wait and I was like did I just do the most massive handbrake turn I'm like yep yeah I did yeah it's okay and then when I read it back once I'd finished it it didn't feel anywhere near as sort of dramatic as it did when I was first writing it I was like oh no it's fine this narrative will totally sustain that but you know when you're in the middle of it it's really hard to know hey I love that handbrake turn thanks I was like come on so that that was very good that was very good (laughs) so it seems a good time to talk about Athene god of war and wisdom I mean Mm. not sure why those two go hand in hand ancient Greece but there we go She is quite often portrayed as the least selfish, most noble goddess (laughs) 
but uh, not in Haynes' world. <laughs> no, not on my watch. I should say I really like her. Um, before anyone gets sad, I I like her in general, and I like her in my book, even though she behaves appallingly. She's a knobber. time and time again. I mean, she just she is she was so much fun to write. Is all I can say because she is just. All my gods, you know, owe a great deal to the Homeric version of them that we see in the Iliad, particularly in the Odyssey too, of having this sort of completely enormous power, absolutely divorced from any kind of sense of responsibility. So it's basically like having superpowered toddlers. Yes, um, exactly that. Just, exactly that. You know, they don't really see any consequences. If they do, they don't care. They're going to live forever. What difference does it make? You know, it doesn't really make any difference if a mortal dies today or in like 50 years, because those are sort of the same thing if if you're a mortal. <laughs> and so the hardest thing about trying to integrate the gods and the mortals in this book, and, and in general, actually, in my books, is trying to get a sense of consequences for anybody at all because it's like you are properly colliding to totally different value systems mm -hmm. one of which is wholly amoral and one of which is a much more kind of conventional morality although obviously it's not our morality because you know it's the bronze age so yeah she she is she is enormously powerful extremely clever quite thin-skinned understatement really snarky i mean yeah she i i can't like she was just in she was just an absolute right every chapter that she's in i'm having so so much fun writing <laughs> she's so stroppy oh, i want she's really mean i want an owl <laughs> give me an owl <laughs> that's it and i get to do the talking book of it too so that those scenes were so yeah i, I was just like give me my owl <laughs> is she natalie who you would like to be if you had superpowers if you were a god and had no morality do you think that's that's where you'd fall i mean i'm quite an ethical person i think but she is for sure my unethical alter ego uh -huh. yeah I, I mean she absolutely is there's just that total inability to process i have to really make an effort sometimes to imagine what it's like to not be you know a massive nerd and to think in sort of super rational terms and i think god it would be so nice just not to bother just, just, just go, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Push someone in a lake. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Push another person in a lake. And that's basically who she is. So, yeah, I mean, yes, I, I can't deny it. Yeah, you're definitely living your best life in those chapters, I think. I wondered if you had a theory as to why the Greeks created such vengeful, capricious, selfish deities. Yeah, I think it's probably because the world doesn't make very much sense and isn't very fair, right? So, you know, you end up with... I mean, sometimes I think they explain psychological things, like we would say that desire is an internal thing. Mm -hmm. If you believe in something like love at first sight, or at the very least, lust at first sight, I think we would probably think that was internal. But if we didn't, we would think it was it was supplied by the object of our affection. It's like a connection between us. Mm. But it, it generally wouldn't occur to us to think it was a whole third or party or more it was the goddess aphrodite or the goddess aphrodite charging her son eros to come and you know whack an arrow into us to make us fall in love that's a, a level of unresponsibility probably further than we're prepared to go so i think some of them is are psychological that's certainly true for as i say for aphrodite maybe also for dionysus and you know how we can kind of go a little mad when we get together in groups and drink some of them i think are to explain physical phenomena if you live in a world which can't possibly understand tectonic plates then you mm. need something to explain earthquakes greece is a really earthquakey place so 
you know, in Italy too. Um, so what you need is, is some sort of explanation for natural phenomena, ditto thunder and lightning. These things do definitely happen. Does it make sense to say it's a deity? Well, not to us with all our scientific knowledge, but yeah, it's not a terrible explanation for two and a half thousand, three thousand years ago. It's as sort of rational as anything else available at the time, I guess. We still try to impose order on a world which yes. is, you know, random now because what's the alternative is that we accept that sometimes just awful things happen and, and that could just happen to you at any point. You know, you could easily end up at a place where you were kind of paralyzed with with fear of the, the world around you. And I'm not sure we can live that, like that. I think even if you don't believe, as it were, that there's an order in chaos, we still often tend to behave as though there is. You know, when we're grief stricken, we bargain. Who with? But, yeah. but we still do it. I'm going to assume, so obviously please correct me if I'm wrong, that as, as someone who's rational and ethical, that you're an atheist. I'm a humanist, technically. A I'm humanist. a patron of humanists, UK, yeah. Okay. But I really like gods, so I'm quite an unusual humanist. <laughs> I, I, they, I haven't got in trouble for it yet, but I feel at some point they're going to notice <laughs> that for somebody who espouses a rational approach to life, I spent almost all my spare time talking about, writing about, and thinking about gods. I, you know, we are who we are. This is, this is where it is now. But do you understand how ancient Greeks worshipped these creations in a similar way to how Christianity survives today for just taking one of the big religions there? Ancient religion is really different in lots of ways from modern religion, not least because religion in the West has become less and less important. So you get more and more people saying that they are of no belief or actively atheist in each census that goes by. Mm -hmm. That's quite a long way from Socrates being prosecuted for Asabea, blasphemy, impiety. And he's aged 70 at the time in uh, 399 BCE. And he's prosecuted on three charges of disrespecting the gods, of inventing his own gods and corrupting the young. And he is forced to drink hemlock uh, poison, a neurotoxin, as a consequence. A 70-year-old man. It's like, he's going to be dead soon anyway. Yeah. It's the ancient world. <laughs> so he's not going to live forever. But, you know, there you go. Even when we find sources which we would think of as being relatively agnostic or atheistic um, in the ancient world, like Lucretius or Xenophanes, or Protagoras, who famously began a work with, on the subject of the gods, I'm unable to say whether they exist or not. There are many obstacles to such knowledge, including the obscurity of the subject and the brevity of human life. And for this, his works were burned. They were wow. burned in the marketplace, although they do still, some copies certainly survive, because Cicero has one hundreds of years later. So, you know, this, these ideas of, of not knowing about the gods have existed for a really long time. But I think that there's a, such a sort of societal sense of belief, which I know we have an established church, I know we have bishops in the House of Lords, but I don't think we have the same connection. I, it's it's really hard to think of anything that is so automatic. You know, I, I kind of felt a bit like that the Jubilee weekend because I'm not a royalist, but obviously I respect that it's a minority position. There's only about 10% of us who feel that way in this country. So, you know, I'm not going to go on marches over it. It's, you know, we are where we are. But it, it's like everybody seemed to be suddenly having street parties and hanging out flags. And it's like, oh, okay, fair enough. And at that point, I felt a bit like, <laughs> I imagine Protagoras must be in Athens. <laughs> all right, all right, yes, all right. So, you know. Yeah, a sort of mob mentality and an excuse for celebration. 
Yeah, and I'm all in favour of celebration, um, particularly after people have had a horrible couple of years. So, you know, I don't, in, a, in lots of ways, I don't think it really matters what it's, it's pegged to. It's not like it was pegged to doing something vicious or unkind, like, you know, animal fighting or something like that. It's, it's pegged to something intrinsically celebratory. It's not something I particularly celebrate, but I'm very happy to respect other people's different feelings. Let's get back to Stone Blind. You mentioned it uh, at the top there, but women in the classics get pretty short shrift when it comes to taking up space in the epic poems, etc., etc. So I wondered how much of Medusa's story comes from epic tradition, and you mentioned Ovid's Metamorphoses, and how much from the Haynes Manual of the classics. <laughs> Well, there are lots of visual art sources for Medusa. That's the thing that you get in the ancient world. There aren't very many literary sources. We have Pindar saying that she was beautiful before she was cursed. Um, and uh, we have Hesiod talking about her mortality and, and calling her wretched. So we've got you know, tiny little scraps. There are a few other things that have been lost, perhaps. Lots of other things that have been lost. Um, a play called The Daughters of Phorcus, the Phorcides, Um which is the Gorgons, and that that doesn't survive to us. We've only got a couple of fragments. But there are loads and loads and loads of vases and sculptures, and that is the cool bit, because obviously Gorgons are a really visual thing. That's Mm. why, for example, a Gorgonaeon, the Gorgon head, is the logo for Versace now, right? Mm. It's You know, they they have been... Gorgonaea have existed, these disembodied heads have existed since before Gorgons, and certainly before Medusa, and well before Perseus. So this idea of the head which has snakes for hair but you could also see it as sort of a lion's mane they often have tusks Mm -hmm. like boar wild boar and you can see these early versions these archaic um, as that particular period is is usually known versions of gorgon heads all kinds of different places agamemnon has one described on his shield in the iliad says he's got a gorgonaeon on his shield these gorgon heads have have always been both terrifying, intended to be terrifying, but also apotropaic is the word, um, to defend you, right? So when you have a gorgon head on your shield, it's meant to scare your enemy, but it's also meant to protect you. And when you have a gorgon on the side of a temple, for example, as there is in Corfu on the side of the temple of Artemis, the goddess of wild animals, the lady of wild animals. Right. So that Medusa, and that is a full-sized gorgon, and it is specifically Medusa, so not just a head, is obviously meant to connect us with wild animals. It seems pretty likely that if you slept in a house which wasn't particularly secure, it's not made of bricks and it doesn't have a big lock on the door, if you're sleeping outside or, you know, in a basically a wooden shack, you probably would be scared going to sleep at night that a wild boar or a mountain lion or snakes might take you out. You know, snakes do kill people in the ancient world. You know, Eurydice is perhaps the most famous, the wife of Orpheus, who gets bitten by a snake uh, sometimes in some versions of her story on her actual wedding day oh, for maximum goes, paper. Yeah, before she goes world. to the underworld and he fails to rescue her given his inability to follow really quite simple instructions. <laughs> um, I say that like I've read an instruction manual in the last decade. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's, so the story of Medusa and, and the story of these Gorgons is really old, but it's mainly in, in visual arts. So there are some extraordinary vase paintings. There's a really, really beautiful one in, in New York at the Metropolitan Museum where Perseus is sort of sneaking up on Medusa and she's 
a girl in this version. She's not a monster. She doesn't have snakes for hair. She's a woman asleep, or a very young woman asleep. And he's sneaking up on her. And behind him is the goddess Athene, sort of encouraging him. And he's got his curved sword. It's a harpe, is the word for this kind of sword in Greek. And it, it, it's almost embracing her neck. And it's like, well, the version of this story that we tend to default to is he's hunting her, but she's kind of hunting him. That's what happens in the Ray Harryhausen Clash yes, of the so Titans. I was just thinking of that one. yeah, yeah. Where she's also armed with a bow and arrow, right? She's got a snaky tail. They don't have tails in ancient sources, um, almost ever. They, they have wings, but that maybe that was... Uh, he'd already got um, harpies, hadn't he? So maybe he didn't want any more wings. Anyway, we see a young woman being attacked while she sleeps by a man who's about to behead her with a sword that's designed for the purpose. It is a, a really upsetting image, but yeah. it's a very, very beautiful vase painting. So yeah, there are loads and loads of, of visual sources and they were really helpful, but generally there were very few literary sources. After writing A Thousand Ships, where there are so many uh, literary sources about the Trojan War, to come to a story where it's like, okay, well, I know that the Graii, you know, the, the grey ladies, the spirits of the sea, exist in like again in Harryhausen world and yeah. I know they exist in Greek myth mm -hmm. but there's almost, there's almost no source about them the story of Danae the mother of Perseus who's famously impregnated or maybe notoriously impregnated by Zeus when he takes on the form of a golden shower stop it stop giggling um, <laughs> it, you know there's almost again there's very very little material about them so Ovid was a great source but there wasn't much else. So I had to do a lot of hunting around for fragments and things. And yeah, a lot of looking at vase paintings. There's an entire battle sequence in this book, which comes from the Pergamon altar in Berlin. Uh, and it's entirely stolen from that. This enormous altar in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, which if you're ever visiting, I'd very much recommend. Amazing. It sounds like, as, as well as it being not arduous, but hard work, that you love doing your research. Oh, I had the best time. <laughs> I had the absolute best time. Yeah, and the, the Pergamon altar especially, I knew I wanted to write about it, but I didn't know I was going to be able to use it quite so kind of wholesale because I had, you know, it was a while since I'd been to Berlin and I was writing that section in maybe January last year, January 21. So I couldn't go to Berlin because we were under lockdown at the time. And what I really needed was detailed photographs of the altar and I'd got pictures from when I was there but not in this flat I couldn't get to the, anyway it was all too complicated and I eventually tracked down a book published in in Germany published in German which I don't read because I took Greek instead uh, but luckily it was the photographs I was after and it's like lockdown was on here the rest of Europe was locked down there was you know, a huge surge of Covid happening and we had literally just gone through another bit of the process of leaving the EU and you know people were starting to say that you couldn't get anything set it was getting you know everything was getting stopped at customs and I was like well I'll order this book and probably it'll never turn up but and then like two days later I was like, huh? How has this happened? It's like an emblematic of German efficiency. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wait, no, the museum is closed. The customs are closed. Everything is closed. And here is my lovely book. So, yes, thank you to the good people who work at the Pergamon Museum. They really saved my, my day. Just nipping back into Stone Blind, which all of this research was for, as ever with your writing, it's panoramic, polyphonic, which you mentioned earlier, and it's really playful. I actually think, for me, this is your most playful book yes i think that's probably true yeah it is a challenge to take the the kind of tonal variation of having these scenes where the gods are interacting with one another 
and they're usually pretty funny and mm. and low on consequences and then that's intercut with the most horrific damage being wrought on a a young woman and it you know there are times when i'm kind of in it thinking are people going to be appalled that I've juxtaposed these scenes? So there is a sense where it's like, well, I want these tones to change. I want it to have that quality of being, you know, as you say, like a panoramic story. It's how it should be. You know, good and awful things do happen. Funny and horrifying things do happen all at the same time in our lives all the time. But it is, it's tricky. You know, it's, it feels like walking on unsteady ground. You're like, oh, am I going to, yeah, just about. So, yeah, I was very keen to, to be able to, to kind of access, but all those bits. It's like, I was a comedian for a really long time. I was always a classicist. I was a comedian for a really long time. And I don't want that kind of side of my, I don't know, writing style, I suppose, personality maybe to get, lost completely so yeah it was really fun to be able to do the sort of fun scenes there were you know a couple of goodish god scenes and ships and they were a really good thing to write so yeah I, I really wanted to do them again stone blind is published by mantle and is out on september the 15th who's next for the haynes treatment what are you up to oh the next thing is volume two of pandora's jar which Ooh. i'm a third of the way through so you get non-fiction from me next this is how we've learned to look after ourselves as time has gone on <laughs> is i can't keep writing devastating novels that make me really miserable <laughs> one after another after another so i alternate them now so because then i just get to do the research and look at them from the outside instead of imagining all this trauma from the inside which uh-huh. is more painful so yeah pandora's jar 2 currently you know working title Pandora's Jar Strikes Back, Pandora's Jar <laughs> of Doom, not sure yet, haven't decided, but I will think of a title at some point. So Goddesses is who you get next. And then I write another novel, and that is about Medea. So I'm going to go straight from terrible sexual assault and cursing to uh, killing children. <laughs> it's impossible to see there will be any downside to my mental <laughs> I think it'll all be fine. For me, and maybe for most people, Medusa and Medea are the big female names from Greek myth. Yeah, I'm really, I mean, I've been in some sort of dialogue with Medea since I was a teenager. It's the first play I think I read in Greek. I wrote my dissertation on her. So, yeah, it's been a long time coming, this one. I feel like we're squaring up to each other, you know. It's like (laughs) cowboy versus the sheriff. (laughs) Just squaring around each other. It's the sand whistling past a bit of tumbleweed. I'm excited that you're going to write as a Western. This is is exciting (laughs) news. I'm also intrigued that you refer to it as going from fiction to non-fiction and then back to fiction again because yes. there is an element of fiction in the classics. Yeah, no, I I don't think you're wrong. Um, but I think it from my perspective, they're a really different process. Mm. You know, the the act of writing Pandora's Jar essentially was doing exactly the same research that I did for A Thousand Ships. But instead of having to go inside these women and go, okay, you've had this horrific abusive relationship and now you're enslaved and your husband is killed. And it's like, I, I, I need a little time out from doing yeah, that. So yeah. essentially the, the nonfiction books, although they are about stories, which obviously are, are fictional, are just, they're all the intellectual fun without the emotional cost, I suppose. Whereas, I mean, I always feel more emotionally connected to the novels, I, I think. But, you know, I have to, I have to let my heart have a break. Between yeah, totally. <laughs> my brain never gets a break, but my, my poor battered heart has to have a rest. And what's going on with the radio series? That is currently going out. Is that true? Yes, it is true. So we've just done series eight, which has been going out through August, but it's available on BBC Sounds for 
as long as, as you want it, I hope. And if you're in a different country, it's on Audible. Uh, and we'll do Series 9 next summer, summer 23. But I have to have a little break between series because otherwise I go crazy because it's so much work. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And people can follow you on Twitter at Official N Haynes. That's right. They sure they? can. Yeah. They sure can. And, and you I should. hope they do. Oh, yeah, we have Mythological Being of the Week. So, yeah. Who doesn't want to follow that? <laughs> it's Thursdays. <laughs> and like I say at the moment, you're very much a Medusa Stan account, and I am there for it. I'm really there for it. Yeah, of course. Oh, Natalie, it's an absolute pleasure chatting to you as always. Thank you so much. And here's to Return of the Pandora's Jar Strikes Back and chatting about that. Can't wait. Standard issue for all women.